0: Well, as uh, some of you uh, maybe who are newer here, you don't know this. The people who've been around here, they're like tired of hearing me talk about this. But for those of you who are new, um, you may not actually realize that we are just about five months into this building. Uh, before this, we, moved, we were worshiping next door. And so we just moved here. Like I said, some of you are just sick of hearing about this. But I meet people every week who don't realize that this is kind of a new thing still for us. And I was thinking about the, the process of, of designing this space because it was probably five or six years ago that we actually started doing this. And when I think back to that process, we were meeting with the architect, and and our leaders were kind of, here's kind of the process. uh, They're getting to know our mission, and our values, and our vision, and we're talking about the kind of church that we are, and the kind of church that we are gonna be in the future. And so then the architect comes back, and he says, all right, based on the things you've said, here's what feels like important, and, and here's some concepts for things we might do with this campus. And you go, okay, that's interesting. You sort of refine that. And then he comes back and says all right so here's some options here's some plans here's some ideas for what you could do and you start to go okay it's it's sort of narrowing in and then you find out about costs (laughs) any of you ever had this process where you're like designing something and you design it this big and then you go oh like we need to rethink some things and so you get cost factors that, that weigh in. Um, and then you kind of go, okay, here's the plan. But as you have the plan and as things start getting built, now there's adjustments, there's things you tweak, there's little compromises you have to make where it's like, well, we thought we were this, but let's, let's actually tweak it. And no, that's not exactly how we hope, but it'll be fine. And, and then you, you build it, and then there's this punch list of all these things that have to get fixed, right? So it's this very like loose process that just gets tighter and tighter and tighter and more refined and here's what I want to tell you today. This is not how it worked for God and the people of Israel in designing the tabernacle. What we're looking at here today as we've been going through the book of Exodus is this long section with excruciating detail about the tabernacle. And this was not the kind of thing where God was like, hey, Israelites, what are your mission and values? What do you guys think? I don't know. Like, it, this was like God giving six chapters of here's, exactly what I want and so it's detail right this is the part of your Bible reading plan where you give up right? And then you start over at Genesis the next year, right? Because this is just six chapters of building plans. Then it's followed by what we'll look at next week, which is uh, this brief rebellion by the people with the whole golden calf incident. And then it's followed, Exodus 35 to 40 is the construction. It's almost like a whole repeat of this section that we're going to look at here today. So it's very detailed and it's God saying, here's exactly what I want. Here's what I want for the place that we're going to dwell together. And here's how I want it to work for the people who are going to lead the way. Now, if you're just catching up with us, if you're just newer with us, here's what we've been looking at. Uh, We've seen that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. God showed that he was God and Pharaoh was not. And after rescuing the people, now he's establishing the people in a new way to live. Here's what life with me is going to be like. And so uh, last week, if, if you weren't here last week, I wasn't here last week, but I got to hear on the podcast, uh, Joshua's sermon about the law, about the covenant. It was so helpful. This whole idea that the, 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 the law of God is still supposed to shape us. It still reveals God's heart. Well, the same thing is true in what we're going to look at here today, the tabernacle the priests and the priesthood, this unfolds more about who God is and about his heart. And so we're going to actually get to know God through looking at this. So here's kind of the structure of how I want to to go through this. I want to ask three questions. I want to ask, what is the tabernacle? Second, who participates in the tabernacle? And then third, what does the tabernacle show us here thousands of years later? So that's kind of how we're going to progress. Let's pray, and then we will get to work. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for how you dwell with us. Thank you that even now, your presence is here, that you're dwelling among us by your spirit through faith in Christ. Thank you for that truth. And so God, we pray now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you, it's all profitable for teaching and correction and reproof and for training in righteousness. So God, would you take this part that feels so obscure and so culturally distant from us, and would you bring it to life? Help us to see what this is all pointing to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so the first question is, what is The tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? So if you have your Bible, look at Exodus 25. Uh, We just read from 29, so you'll have to swipe left a little bit to get to Exodus 25. And this is the beginning of this whole section uh, where the tabernacle is introduced. So Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Uh, By the way, I just want to pause there and say the reason we're able to be in such an amazing space is because there were so many of you whose hearts were moved and you gave of your own free will. Many of you sacrificially and... uh, costly and generously. And you did that because your heart was moved. We didn't show up at your house and say, what are you in for? What are you in for? <laughs> you just were moved as you thought about being the best friend our community has, as you thought about the, the heart to see people meet and follow Jesus. like You just were moved. And I, I love that that's God's heart. It's like, hey, I'm going to make you do this. Like, I just I want your heart to be willing. And here's what they're to receive. Verse three. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen goats hair tanned ram skins goat skins acacia wood oil for the lamps spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and the breastpiece uh, by the way it's worth just pausing there and realizing these are not everyday items for people sojourning through the desert Right, this is not just stuff that they had in abundance. This is not just everyday stuff. This was special stuff. This was treasure type stuff, and it's made us wonder where did they get that? Right, they're nomadic, wandering through the desert, leaving Egypt, headed toward a promised land. Where did they get it? And the answer is, they got it from Egypt. And as they were about to leave in the Exodus, they went to Egypt and said, "Hey, we want all your treasure." And the people of Egypt, moved by the threat of God, said, "Here you go." And so God's going to have this wonderful place constructed through the way he just absolutely took this from Egypt. And here's what it says in verse 8, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God's heart's to dwell with his people. And he says, verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God says, I have an idea here in my head of what this is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look a lot like my dwelling in heaven, and I want you to follow it to the T. I don't need input. I don't need refinements. (laughs) Just do it the way I'm telling you. And so the rest of this section, then, is all about what this tabernacle is supposed to be like. What is it supposed to look like? What sort of furniture is in there? How is it supposed to go? And here's what I'm just totally aware of is that, that the vast majority of us, when you hear the word tabernacle, I might as well say spaceship. Only with a spaceship, at least some image would pop in your head of what that is, right? Tabernacle is like, what are we talking about? Is this like, okay, it's a tent, I guess, but is it like, is it like a Roman Catholic tent? Or does it feel like this? Or like, what, what is a tabernacle? And so I, I think to talk through this, actually, it'd be much more helpful to try to show you with illustrations what this would look like, right? These things are so detailed that artists are able to create renderings of what this would have been. And so here's an overview of what the tabernacle uh, would have looked like. And this is all that's described here. So here's, here's kind of the first overview Picture The tabernacle is technically that tent that you see there in the back, and it's uh, surrounded by this courtyard. And I'm just going to kind of give you a virtual tour of the tabernacle. This is all stuff that's talked about in these chapters. So around the tabernacle courtyard is a curtain enclosure. This is an area around the tent. It's enclosed by this fence made of fine linen hangings. They're supported by pillars. They were about 158 feet long, about 80 feet wide and about eight feet tall, okay? So it's just this linen type thing that goes around it. There's an entrance on the east side, and that's significant. We'll talk about why that is in a little bit, but the entrance is on the east side. It's a curtain that's about 32 feet long, and that gives access into this whole courtyard. Once you enter the courtyard, what's the thing right in front of you? Well, it's a bronze altar. It's made of acacia wood and it's covered with bronze. This altar is light enough for the Levites to carry because this is going to be a portable structure that they're going to take with them. And this was where they sacrificed a lamb every morning and every evening. That's what we read about is that this sacrifice would be happening all the time. So here's what's fascinating. The first thing you see is an altar where an animal has to be sacrificed in your place. Here's what A commentary writer, Tim Chester, said, As they entered the courtyard, the first thing an Israelite would encounter was the altar. This dominated the way in. He or she deserved to die for their sins. First thing you're struck with is that an animal is going to have to die in your place. Then you get past the bronze altar, and it goes to a bronze laver, a kind of basin that was cast of solid bronze, and it was filled with water for ceremonial washings by the priests before they offered their sacrifices. So this is all what's in the courtyard. The tables that you see kind of along there would be where they would have prepared the sacrifices. And then you get to the outer veil of the tabernacle itself. This outer veil would have been made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn of fine twisted linen, and it was kind of the access point into the tabernacle tent. And the first room you come into when you get to the tabernacle is the holy place, the holy place. This is this interior uh, first room that you come in, and it houses a number of different things in in this interior holy place room. The first thing that you would see on your right would be the table of showbread, is what it's called. It's this table where what's called the bread of the presence is laid on the table. And the way that this is described is that there would be 12 loaves, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And you probably think, don't think like a a loaf like you'd buy at Costco. Think more like pitas, pita bread sort of stacked up there. And so this bread was something that the priests were to replace every week. And so in God's house, there's food. Isn't that good news? Right, I mean, what is a home if there's not food in it? And how do we experience relationship if not through food? And isn't it fascinating that the goal of salvation, in a sense, is a meal with God? That's how the people experienced the Passover, was through a meal. On the last supper, Jesus institutes a new meal, the Lord's Supper, to be able to enjoy him and commune with him. The end of the story of the Bible is a marriage supper of the lamb. So we're invited to eat with God and that's represented by the bread of the presence. Then on your left, you would see this golden lampstand. And this lampstand is a symbol of the tree of life. If you kind of read through the description of how it was to be made, it's supposed to very much look like a tree with branches and these seven oil lamps that would be constantly burning. So, God invites you to his house where there's bread, and he's left the light on. And this lamp represents the tree of life and the light that God invites you into. Then in front of you would have been the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense was used to regularly burn incense before God, and this did a couple things. One is it probably helped neutralize the smell, right? You had lots of animal sacrifices, lots of blood going out, and so this very aromatic perfume and incense was burned, and that was great. But the other thing that it did is it created a lot of smoke. And this was important because this signified the presence of God. When God met with his people on Mount Sinai, there was lots of smoke. So isn't it interesting that in the first church building, God puts a fog machine, right? Like some of you have been to churches where you like, there's like fog and, and smoke and you're like, I don't like this. This is Satan's mist. It's like, no, it's God's idea. And so I just think that's sort of funny. I don't know. Take, take that for what it's worth. So the first smoke machine, I mean, the altar of incense is, is there in the tabernacle. And then that's kind of all that's in the holy place. And then the next room that you would enter, but you actually wouldn't be allowed to enter unless you were the high priest and only once a year, the next room is the holy of holies, the most holy place. And it is uh, introduced with a curtain. There's a curtain that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies. This curtain, this is a big deal. For one thing, this curtain, as was this whole structure, it faces east. And for another, it's embroidered with cherubim, which are these angel warriors with flaming swords. Now, why is that significant? Because when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, do you know what direction they went? They went east. And when God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, out of God's presence, what did he put at the edge of the garden to keep them from getting back in? He put cherubim, angel warriors with flaming swords. And so here, in front of the most holy place, the holy of holies, is this reminder that because of your sin, you can't get in. Right? On your right is this bread inviting you to commune with God. On your left is this, lo- this light inviting you that God has the lights on. In front of you is this wonderful smell, the oil diffuser, the Yankee candle that makes this thing beautiful. And then in front of you is a curtain that says, no further, no entrance. You may not come in. In that room then, that Holy of Holies, was this innermost room. It held the Ark of the Covenant, and it was the site of the most sacred ritual of the tabernacle, the annual Day of Atonement. We know that as Yom Kippur, where the high priest would go in once a year to make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. The blood in that process would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, which is that main thing in the Holy of Holies, this holiest object of Israelite worship. And the Ark contained the tablets of the law, and the Ark was the place where uh, God said that kind of between the cherubim on the mercy seat on top of the Ark is where God's presence would be. So the Ark itself is not God's presence, but the Ark is the place upon the pres- where, where the presence of God would dwell. Now, here's what's fascinating. As I take you through that whole tour, the ark is the last thing I mention, right? Because I'm just taking you kind of through the thing. But if you actually read this, Exodus 25, the very first thing that's mentioned is the ark. Why? Because this whole section, this is all about the presence of God. God wants to dwell with his people. So that's what the tabernacle is is now the second question is this who participates in the tabernacle who participates in this and what you see actually is there are three layers there's the courtyard which uh, just everyone is kind of allowed to come into the courtyard then there's the holy place which only the priests were allowed to go into and then there's the most holy place which only the high priest was able to go into and as i said only once a year and this three-layer structure actually resembles what we read in exodus 19 and 20 with mount sinai At the bottom of the mountain, all the people were allowed to be there. A little higher up was a place where only Israel's elders were to be. At the very top is the place where only Moses and Aaron were to be. And so God is keeping people somewhat at a distance, even as he's dwelling with them. And so the people who are allowed into this holy place, into this most holy place, are the priests. And the priests are Aaron and his sons. And in Exodus chapter 28, there's this whole discussion of the priest's garments. In chapter 29, there's this whole discussion of how they were to be consecrated, uh, because these are just men. They're sinners. They cannot go into the presence of of God, unless they're cleansed, unless they're consecrated, and so these uh, priests go through a seven-day consecration period because they're unholy. As I said, chapter 28 describes their clothing, and the clothing was significant, so I'll take you kind of through a tour of their clothes as well. Here would be just kind of an overview of the high priest, and you see, I mean, there's this this elaborate clothing, this elaborate turban, this elaborate crown. There's all this description about all the different way that these garments are supposed to be. The one thing that's never mentioned, however, is there's no indication that the priest should wear shoes. And people, scholars have commented, why, why is that? What's the significance? And no one knows for sure, but it makes you wonder because when Moses first encountered the burning bush, God said, Take off your shoes for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. So perhaps they were shoeless because of that. Well, on the upper part of their body was this thing called an ephod. And the ephod was woven of the same material, the same linen, the same fabric as the curtains. And so the priest is, in essence, kind of a mini tabernacle. And at the top, at the shoulders, you see those two stones there. And engraved on those stones would be the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the priest is representing Israel as he goes before the presence of God. And then you have the the breastplate of the ephod. And on the breastplate were these 12 stones Again, representing that he's going before God as representative of the people. And so that's the priest, and that's the tabernacle. The third question, this is where we want to kind of camp here, is what does the tabernacle show us? Okay, so you're done with the tour, right? You got the tour? You got a picture in your head? Okay, that's what it looks like. Those are the people that can do this. What does this mean? What do we do with this? And so what I'm going to try to do is kind of summarize the point of these six chapters. And I'm going to try to do that with three, uh, three ideas. The first one is this. The first thing the tabernacle shows us is that God dwelling with his people is heaven meeting earth. God dwelling with his people is heaven meeting earth. Let me show you this. God really wants to dwell with his people. We read this just a moment ago in chapter 25, verse 8. Here's what it said. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The scripture we read that that Kelly read for us in chapter 29 In uh, chapter 29, verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I'm the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God is clearly here saying, the whole point of this tabernacle, what I want it to be, is a place where I dwell with you. Now, question What was the first place that God dwelt with people? Where was it? It was the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. This place where God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And the Garden of Eden was this place where heaven met earth. There was not this distance. There was not this keep out sign. There was this relationship that was close and intimate between created human beings and the creator holy God. Close intimate that was the garden of eden and here's what's fascinating is the tabernacle is filled with all these echoes of eden All these little glimpses that what God is showing in the tabernacle is actually a picture of the Garden of Eden. I already mentioned uh, one of them, the idea of that entrance in the east side, but but here's here's some more. Here's one, is the list of materials that you read about at the beginning of Exodus 25. It begins with talking about gold, and it ends with talking about onyx. Well, in Genesis 2, talking about the garden, there's a list of things that are in the garden, and the first one is gold. The last one is onyx. It's just a little tip of the cap, just a little nod that what God's doing in this place is creating a new Garden of Eden. Here's a second echo of this is that the lampstand, as I said, it's, it looks like a tree. It looks like the tree of life. It looks like the garden. All this other imagery in the, in the tabernacle is, is looking like plants and trees and pomegranates and fruit, like the Garden of Eden. Here's a third echo of this. This this is actually pretty fascinating. If you look at chapter 25 to 31, there's a phrase that keeps appearing, and it appears seven times. Seven times it says, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses. Over and over, seven times, and this is an echo of what we read in Genesis 1, where seven times it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. And this is wild. And in Genesis 1, the last time it says, and God said, it's about the Sabbath. In Exodus 31, the last time it says, the Lord said to Moses, it's about the Sabbath. The tabernacle is a new garden of Eden where God is with his people. But, there's a big but, there's a huge problem. God God's dwelling with his people. It's heaven meeting earth. But there's a huge problem, which is the second thing the tabernacle shows us, which is that God is dangerously holy. God is dangerously holy. The word holy is a word that means set apart. It means completely separate from sin, untainted by evil, and not just separate from sin, but totally connected to righteousness, and goodness, and beauty. That's what it means to be holy. And God is dangerously holy. The word holy in these six chapters shows up 34 times. Holy, holy, holy. And all these things have to be made holy. Why? Because God is holy. And he is dangerously Holy. Right? This is not a thing where he's like, hey, you know what? I'll be over here in this Holy of Holies and just whenever you feel like it, just stroll on in. No problem. No, no, no. It's very restricted. One person, once a year, gets to make it in. And he's, one of the things that it says in the priest's outfits is that at the bottom he's supposed to have bells and no one's exactly sure. The scripture doesn't explicitly explain it, but some people have, have wondered, is it because that way you could still hear whether the priest was alive in the Holy of Holies? And if not, you could like somehow try to drag him out because he might get killed in God's presence. Right, throughout the rest of scripture, every time someone encounters God, it's like, away from, depart from me, I'm an evil person. I'm an unholy person. There's an amazing part. We've seen it in the, in the book of Exodus. What we said was that throughout the whole book, God's communicating to his people through Moses. He tells Moses something, Moses passes it on. Except Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, with the giving of the 10 commandments, God himself speaks to the people. And do you know what they say at the end of Exodus 20? They say, hey, Moses, uh, could you just let God talk to you for now? That was way too scary. Like, we're afraid that God's maybe gonna k- kill us. They're scared of God's presence, they're scared of God's holiness. As I said, this curtain that's keeping you out of the most holy place is covered with these cherubim, these, these warrior angels, just like it says in Genesis three twenty four, that out of the garden God drove out the man. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Get this. The cherubim, these warrior angels, do not protect God from us, they protect us from God because you can't be a sinful, evil, compromised person and enter the presence of God. And listen, you and me, on our best days, we're like a mixed bag, right? Like I mean, there, there there are times when I'll this doesn't happen a lot, but I'll, I'll get home early, and Molly will be out getting the kids from school or sports or whatever, and I, I'm there, and I and every now and then this is l- not that common, but every now and then I'll go, maybe I could do something to help her. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to empty the dishwasher. I'm going to clean up this stuff, and. And so it's like, and, I, and when I do that, I'm like, yes, I really, I want to serve her. This would be nice. This will be such a blessing for her. This will be so great. But then when she gets home, I'm kind of waiting for her to acknowledge what I've done. Right? And so even in my best moments, I'm still like, Babe, did you see it? Did you see how I helped you? Aren't you grateful for me? Right? Like... My best moments, I'm mixed bag. And a lot of times it's just bad stuff in us, isn't it? Not God. And so here's this tension that the tabernacle introduces. And it's a tension that really goes through the whole rest of the Old Testament. Is that on one hand... God wants to dwell with his people. He said over and over through Exodus, you will know that I'm the Lord and I will dwell with you. God wants to be close. God wants to be felt. God wants to be experienced. God wants to be personal. God wants to be be imminent, close by. But on the other hand, he is so holy and we are so sinful that we can't really get that close. God's desires to be imminent and proximate and close, but he's also transcendent, holy. Right? And so God creates this warm house. Hey, it's great. Here's the bread. Here's the light. Here's the incense. But don't come too close. And so, what do we do with that tension? What resolves that tension? Well, there's a hint of it in this section. And that's this, number three, the only way into God's presence is through the blood. Through the blood. When you read Exodus 29, this consecration of the priest, the process of trying to make unholy people holy in order to enter into God's presence, when you read it, you see the only thing that gives them this access, this whole seven-day consecration process, is blood. There is just blood everywhere. You don't need to turn to this, but Exodus 29, verse 12 says, you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar, right? There's so much blood you can pour it, glug, 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 Verse 16, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. Verse 20, you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hand and on the great toes of their right feet and you shall throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Splash. Then you shall take part of the blood that's on the altar and on the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his son and on his son's garments with him. Right, so these people are covered in blood. This seems crazy to us. And it's not just the consecration part where there's lots of blood, but it actually says later in the chapter that day after day after day, here's what they're gonna have to do. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So day after day after day, The only thing that gets unholy people kind of, sort of near God's presence is huge amounts of blood. Now, I'm wondering if you've noticed today that as you came to church here at Redemption Gateway, we're not sacrificing any animals today. Have you noticed that? You dropped your kids off? You didn't hear bleeding sheep? like ready to... Right? There's not an altar out in this courtyard where afterward we're going to have an animal sacrifice and your kids are going to walk home traumatized. Right? We're not doing that today. And yet, in our prayers and in our songs, we have already today said and celebrated that God is with us. That God is here. And none of us have dropped dead. Yet. I'm just- Just kidding, right? Some of you thought, some of you were like, man, I'm not coming. If I darken the door of that place, it's gonna strike me. No, 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 no. So how, how is this? How is it that we now say we're the people of God and we're experiencing God literally dwelling with us and we can enter his presence not with terror, but with joy? Why is that possible? It's possible because all of these things in the tabernacle are pointing ahead to Jesus. And here's what we see when we get to the New Testament. We see that Jesus is the true tabernacle. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt in Among us. That word dwelt is the Greek word for tabernacle. This is what we're going to celebrate at Christmas. Jesus tabernacled. God Himself tabernacled among us, and we've seen His glory full of grace and truth. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the place where heaven meets earth. Jesus is God incarnate. Heaven meeting earth. This is what the tabernacle points to. But it gets better. Because Jesus is also the true high priest. The author of Hebrews and the book of Hebrews just has all these wonderful connections between the book of Exodus and the way we see it now in light of Christ. And in Hebrews chapter four, it says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. So get this. We do have a high priest, right? You didn't see him walking around today with goofy clothes. But we have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. And since we have him, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Then it says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is the amazing reality of Jesus is that he was tempted. And he was abused. And he was ignored. He was abandoned. And he suffered loss. And he suffered pain. And he suffered weakness. And yet in all of it, he stayed close to the Father. He did not sin. Adam and Eve had everything you'd ever want, and they turned away. Jesus had a life of suffering and pain and loss, and he stayed faithful. He's the true high priest. But he's not just the true tabernacle. He's not just the true high priest. He's also the true sacrifice. It says in Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not with hands, that is not of this creation. So, so, so Christ is showing the real tabernacle, the real place where God dwells. And it says in verse 12, and he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing An eternal redemption. Get this. Jesus did not die on the cross because he was a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus did not die on the cross because the religious leaders got all bent out of shape and just wanted to shut him down. No, no, no. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus sacrificed himself, dying, On that Passover Friday, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and as he died, the temple curtain was torn in two. And access to the presence of God was open for sinners who would trust in him. Jesus is the place where heaven meets earth. And we are the people of Jesus who dwell in the presence of God, a holy, righteous, perfect, and gracious God who welcomes us in, who leaves the light on, and who invites us to a meal with him. Wow, that's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for good news. God, thank you for doing everything that was needed to make it possible to enter your presence. Thank you that the blood of sheep and goats cannot remove sin, but the blood of your son does. So forgive us, cleanse us, walk with us, guide us to live close to Jesus, that we could enjoy the joy of your presence. We pray in his name, amen.